Come on now. This machine is not cooperating today. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thanks for joining us again for another riveting episode of our podcast about Oklahoma politics and government. Just another day in the life. Joining me today is Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. Thanks for being here. Scott, of course, uh, as he mentioned last week, is not with us today. He is uh, out of town. Actually, he's not not even working. He's on vacation. Good for him for taking a break. That sounds like a nice thing. Thumbs up from Bailey and I, Scott, uh, wherever you are. I don't think I think he gets back in town on Monday. So, um, well, man. What a doozy. I've, this is the time of year we say that every week. We're just like bracing for impact each day. Fridays normally offer a little bit of a reprieve because the legislature has gone home. But this week, so far today, has been a little bit brutal. We'll talk about that um, later on in the show. I guess the big thing this week, right, is that the deadline has passed. We'll say the the last big deadline of the session um, of non-budget bills. That's right. Yeah. So yesterday, uh, Thursday, the 22nd Earth Day, as it was, um, was the deadline for bills to pass off the opposite chamber floor. So all the House bills have to pass the floor of the Senate. All the Senate bills have to pass the floor of the House, with the exception of bills that go through JCAB and budget bills, right? And in theory, everything else from here on out to the end of the session, there there would only be two topics, the budget and redistricting. But as we all know, JCAB has a way of magically resurrecting issues and bills that we all thought were gone. And I, in fact, on that note, I'll just say um, Joe Dorman over a friend of the pod, but uh, over at the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy and a former state legislator had a really good column earlier this month on the OICA website about legislators shucking bills. I'll enunciate shucking. Uh, and uh, that's basically like using floor substitutes and committee substitutes to insert language into other bills. He talked about how when he was in the legislature, it was rarely done and only in like extreme circumstances and usually with pretty strong bipartisan support to say this is okay we got to do this because we need this urgently for some reason like the may 3rd 1999 tornado they had to pass some uh, some financial relief bills and so they shucked a bill to put language in to do it then and that made sense but this year they're doing it left and right and most As if of, it's common practice yeah and and you know changing the rules literally like suspending the rules very easily just about whatever they want and it's been hard to keep up, and it has almost always resulted in, I would say, bad bills, right? It's not like they're shucking bills to make people's lives better. They're using it to either enhance uh, criminal penalties or discriminate against a particular group of humans, you know, stuff like that. And Andy, I'd say that's one concern that I saw throughout social media, particularly Twitter, about the lack of transparency this session. There were members posting about how due to this process of lawmakers being able to substitute language through committee substitutes and take different bills to then magically put something on the House floor that wasn't set for the agenda that day that then magically shows up that lawmakers are having to make decisions on. And so that aligns with the frustration that the public has about the lack of transparency in the legislature and, and doing things kind of under the radar uh, without the opportunity for public scrutiny and feedback from whether that's the public or, or different perspectives, even within the legislature. Um, I saw a tweet from Representative Trish Ranson who said that on Wednesday, the House in particularly spent 10 hours hearing bills and they heard 87 bills on that one day. And so this is typically the time of year because this is the last shot for many bills to advance. 
um, that have moved, you know, this far in the process to get through this session. Um, but it's also a very exhausting time that you'll see a lot of strategic maneuvering for lawmakers to get their measure that they feel is important through. So, yeah, that's right. And it, it really is tough to follow stuff. And, you know, every morning, um, those who are advocates or lobbyists or have some relation to the Capitol, right, are like checking the meeting agendas for the committees that they are following most closely. And so like, I follow the rules committee, which is a boring thing to follow, but there's some important laws that go through there. And you will like watch the agenda to see what bills are going to be heard. You roughly know the order at which they would be heard. But then there's always this like kind of awareness that, oh, well, they may also might just throw stuff on there that's not in the agenda. And this is a good reminder that the state legislature is not subject to the Open Meetings Act nor the Open Records Act. They wrote the laws and exempted themselves so they can do this without violating the law. Very and they just have the opportunity to amend the rules as they see fit. <laughs> so we saw a lot of examples this session of the legislature adjusting the rules to allow for the things that they want to do in the ways that they want to do them. Yeah, that's, you know, each year or every other year, I guess, this is a weird thing. Like they, one of the first things they have to do is adopt uh, rules for like how they're going to run their chamber, right? The House and Senate have their own set of rules. They did the same thing with redistricting this year where those committees adopted rules about redistricting and then they follow those rules except when they decide to change the rules or suspend the rules and do whatever they want. And uh, yeah, it's just bananas. That is a uh, a feature, right? Um, that most of us don't have in our everyday lives. We can't just make it up as we go along. So true. All right, well, today bailey let's uh let's do good news bad news because i've got i've got eight bullet points four are good four are bad so maybe we'll just go back and forth and talk about them that way that also that will limit the amount of time that we can be uh contrarian about the bad bills although or the bad things they're not all bills but some of these are very important um but we want to intersperse and sprinkle it with some goodness so we don't leave this hour feeling sullen right and for sure Maybe I'll try not to check Twitter while we're recording so that I don't see anything else bad. <laughs> All right. So um, good news. I wish I had a, I should, do I have a sound effect for these? I've got, here, we'll, we'll say good news. Ida's law passed Senate bill 172. Um, and now this dealt with missing, is it missing and murdered indigenous women? Can you break yes. it down for us a little bit? Uh, so, when you look at statistics for women who are kidnapped um, and harmed, there's a disproportionate number of indigenous women who are taken um, and abused and oftentimes in these cases murdered um, without any resolution of knowing who did it or even what happened to these women if their bodies are even recovered and if they're found. And so there's a effort around the country and particularly in Oklahoma because we have 39 tribal nations here in our state um, and a significant population of uh, Native Americans to focus on that issue of what can be done to uh, protect indigenous women and reduce the number of women who are are taken um, and to to get to protect them and because I mean ultimately we we don't want justice quote unquote we want women to be safe so that's the ultimate outcome is is what can we do to to help women be safe and this is an effort that's been worked on I think for a couple of sessions now. Um, that has made it over the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. We should have a future episode, maybe this summer after things calm down, just about the word justice, because it, I think it has taken on larger than life meanings over the last couple of years. And I, I think a lot of people are perhaps a little bit confused now about what that means because they hear justice, social justice, criminal justice, right? 
all these things. And uh, it's often reactionary after hmm. something devastating has happened, right? Um, and our goal is to have that uh, preventative <laughs> proactive. perspective and yeah. proactive aspect of justice to keep people out of the criminal justice system or keep indigenous women from being murdered and being kidnapped, right? Yeah. Or keeping um, people of color from being murdered by police, right? That's, that should be the ultimate goal of justice. And so Andy, I think that's a great idea for us to, to dive into that some more in the future on, on how we should frame the ideas of justice. Yeah, interesting. Okay, um, so that was good news. We'll do uh, bad news here the first bad news scott's gonna be so disappointed that he missed out on all these sound effects uh the first bad news is that the governor signed house bill 1674 which we've discussed a couple of times this is the bill that would um i guess make it uh legal or not not punishing if someone drives into a crowd if they um felt scared because of a riot and they injured or killed people right so it's a bill that protects those who harm others versus yeah. protecting those who are exercising their constitutional rights and in, in, in demonstrating and using their freedoms, right? That's so right. I think that's a huge, huge concern for many of us, especially for me as someone who participates in demonstrations and protest on things that I believe in. And I mean, and, and everyone across the political spectrum should be concerned about this because whether it's a gun rights protest or it's a protest um, against police brutality or it's a protest related to environmental justice, this bill says that if you are demonstrating and someone runs you over, they could go scot-free. Right. Right. They're, they're in the right. They're in the right. Yeah. So uh, we expected the governor would sign this, uh, it, but you always have like a little bit. I always have a little bit of hope that maybe he won't. Uh, but of course he did. So it's it's law. I don't remember if there was an emergency clause on this or not. If it goes, into I think it just goes in effect in November. All right. So uh, I guess we got a few months to protest in the streets before we get run over with reckless abandon. All right. That's bad news. Well, uh, before you go into that, Andy, um, that might be a great time to mention um, Joshua Harris Till. Yes. So, uh, yeah, thank you for, I updated my agenda and took that off. So if, in response to this, this is a potentially good news. Uh, so Joshua Harris Till, who is. He's president of Young Democrats of America. Is he still president? I didn't know if that mm -hmm. was still the case. Yeah. So he. Um, I saw on Twitter today that he said he was signing a contract with uh, legal counsel with the intent of filing a veto referendum to repeal this law. Uh, and so if you're someone who likes to sign petitions, hopefully coming to a you know street corner near you, um, veto referendums all require the fewest number of signatures to get on the ballot. They He hasn't filed it yet, so I think he has... It's 90 days from the from the end of session, I think, um, to file the petition and then and to collect the signatures and all of that. And he only has to get 5% of the turnout from the previous gubernatorial election. And so I think that's uh, like 75,000 signatures, something around that, 68,000. Uh, and so it's not it's not nothing. Like, it's still difficult, but um, the potential for it to be there. And what that would do is if he collects the signatures, then the signatures, then the, the question would go on the ballot um, to of whether or not the people want to repeal it. I think that's my understanding of how that works. Does that sound right to you, Bailey? I think so. I don't remember the last time we had a, a veto referendum that made it on the ballot. There was one attempted a few years ago about a gun bill but they started late and didn't get enough signatures. So this one might be a thing that is drummed up enough, um, enough ire of the public that they might push back. So, and I'm sure that the ACL, ACLU of Oklahoma and other 
civil liberties organizations will probably challenge this legislation through a legal setting as well. So I'm sure there's going to be uh, multiple fronts in trying to uh, prevent this legislation from being enacted. Yes, I agree. Okay. Well, that was the uh, first bad news. Now back to the good news. Um, Senator Kerry Hicks bill, Senate bill 44. I don't remember if this one has a name, but it's, um, deals with criminal justice and it's will stop punishing people for missing court dates due to being incarcerated. I, I saw a lot of uh, people on Twitter saying, I didn't even know this was a thing, but indeed it is. Oklahoma relies on the criminal justice system to pay for different services through fines and fees. And so this is another area where people could be given another fine or uh, given additional time in sentencing uh, for missing those um, court dates, but they're sitting in the prison system, right? And so it's like putting people in a lose-lose situation. And so I'm grateful that um, Carrie Hicks took the helm on this important piece of legislation um, and that the legislature uh, supported it through the process and that Governor Stitt signed it. So it's just one piece of this massive um, justice system that we need to correct, <laughs> but it certainly um, is moving us in the right direction. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anyone that thinks it's okay to like find someone. So like you're in jail, so you miss a court date because they didn't transport you over there or it's in another county or something. And so then they fine you or they charge you with contempt. And then it's like a never ending cycle. And I think back a couple of years ago, we did a series of criminal justice um, uh, podcasts. And one of them with um, Brian Ted Jones was talking about fines and fees. And we talked about this where it suddenly someone who gets arrested, even, you know, if they've got a traffic ticket somewhere else, things um, it like it's a, it's a, downward spiral or a compounding cycle of, of injustice, we'll say. For sure. So, For sure. All right. um, so that's a, that's a good news. Common sense. I like good common sense legislation. All right. Back to the bad side, the dark side. Um, Senate bill 1643, which is the uh, anti-doxing bill. And I try to stay up on internet lingo. Doxing is still relatively new in my repertoire, but uh, so doxing is my understanding is when basically people post someone's personal information on yeah, with the intention to create harm to them. Right. And so this is specifically, I think, couched as a bill to protect police officers who might be targeted by people by sharing their personal information. They don't want rightly so. They don't want people coming to their house and like throwing rocks or threatening them or their families, those kinds of things in response to, um, well, I guess in, in response to the fact that they are a police officer is the idea. Um, I don't know how widespread this is, if it's even happening at all, um, but it seems like one of those bills that is a reaction to a tiny situation or um, you know something that's, they're making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, the problem with this bill, my understanding is that it was very broad, right? That that it's not just like, like obviously your phone number and your home address, those kinds of things. I could see where, you know, for certain public officials, it might be beneficial to have them not published online. For example, in Arizona, um, four years ago or 10 years ago, the person who was the chair of the independent redistricting committee was an independent. They have, I think it's four Republicans, four Democrats, and one independent that chairs the committee. And her information got out and people were like, she had to board up her windows. Like they were throwing bricks through her windows and stuff just about drawing maps. So um, I can see where that would be. We all want some of our, we want to maintain our privacy. The or issue, even what we saw in Georgia this year, right? Yeah. With the contentions of the election and the threats that poll workers and election officials were getting, right? Um, so there is a need to protect public servants um, from any type of extremism. However, does this bill do that? Right. 
no. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that this is the way it's worded. And from watching the debate, it's intended to be like any information, right? So they specifically ask someone in the debate, ask what about their name, which is printed on their badge. Right. And like, and they said, yes, like any information about them would be considered personal information and would thereby penalize someone. So in theory, if you got pulled over by officer Johnson in Dell city, I don't know if there's an officer Johnson in Dell city. I'm just saying, if you got pulled over by him and you complained and said, I got pulled over today by Officer Johnson, you know, Officer John Johnson from Dell City Police, and he was a real jerk to me. I don't, you know, it's it's a question of like, well, does that meet the threshold for threatening or targeted action against him? I don't think so, but that's that's the breadth of the law as written. It just adds too much room for interpretation, and we're in a climate where people want to protect law enforcement and the institutions more so than they want to protect (laughs) the rights of people. And so if someone is in a space where they're trying to talk about an experience that happened to them, are they at risk of being punished for lifting an experience that happened to them and talking about it in a public way. And I mean, the reality is, is if you're a registered voter, your address is public information anyway. Right. (laughs) And so this would go in and like hide it in certain places like that, which seems crazy in some way. So absolutely. And so I, I, I think it's, it's another disappointment in this idea of, stifling the rights of the people to be able to hold public officials accountable and law enforcement officers are included in public officials, right? Um, They are signing up to serve our tax dollars are paying their paychecks. So they do have an obligation to uphold their oaths of duty to serve the people. And if people don't have that channel to talk about their experiences, that, that really is concerning of, and I, and I get the perspectives of wanting to ensure that we're not targeting people to create a mob, to harm public officials, but this bill is not specific enough to do the thing that it's envisioning and could, could, and could cause more harm to the people then then be helpful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to just be like, hey, everyone just be cool and we won't have these these silly, unnecessary laws. However, they seem to pass them even when people are being cool. So maybe that's not the ticket. Maybe we should just go ahead and be wild. I don't know. Um before we go back to uh good news, a quick update that I just received. Um pursuant to our discussion about House Bill 1674, the uh, drive into the crowd bill. So I asked an attorney friend about veto referendums, and they said the way they work is that you have 90 days, you have to turn in signatures within 90 days of the close of the legislative session. If you do, then the law does not go into effect until it is approved by a vote of the people. So technically, you're not repealing the law. It's just that the law doesn't go into effect. And I asked, well, what if a bill has an emergency clause? And they said, you can't do a referendum if a bill has an emergency clause. That's one of the reasons why all the bills have emergency clauses these days. You could theoretically challenge the emergency clause, but there's not really a law on that anymore. And that would be a very expensive test case because you first have to get the signatures anyway, right? And so, because I would think about, let's say they passed a bill in February with an emergency clause, right? Just right out the gate, second week in February, they pass it, it gets signed, it goes into effect immediately. And then you have no recourse against that in theory. I guess you could take it to court. There's always that option, right? For people that have just endless piles of money. Who knows? Okay, uh, let's go back to good good news. Uh, Representative Carol Bush from Tulsa uh, had a bill that would legalize needle exchange programs. 
with Senator John Michael Montgomery from Lawton. At the That's Senate. right. I forgot that he had this too. I like both these people. They seem to be good common sense legislators whenever I've interacted with them. Also, uh, um, Senator Montgomery has quite the like, I guess he kind of trimmed his beard, but his hair is still like quarantine shaggy. I like uh, I like the look when I saw him the other day up at the Capitol. Uh, yeah, so this needle exchange bill um, was signed into law. This is a huge deal. Um, the They've been working on it for years, right? And so this opens the door for harm reduction, like true and harm reduction, capital H, capital R is a thing where it's like the the, the whole goal of, of a needle exchange program is to help people be as safe as they can, acknowledging that like kicking heroin is or meth or whatever you're shooting is very difficult, right? And we can't just quit cold turkey for a variety of like legitimate medical reasons, but we can help them by avoiding the minimizing the risk of them getting or spreading other diseases like hepatitis C, like HIV. And so by allowing them to come in and get clean needles, like an exchange program, give a dirty one, get a clean one that also then like gives more what we call touches, right? Like they are coming into a care provider however often, and that is more and more opportunities for them to have positive influence, right? Another opportunity for them to say yes to treatment, a, another opportunity for them to um, have a conversation with someone, get their other needs met, make sure that they're not dead, right? So on the whole, we have a ton of data out there that says that harm reduction works, that needle exchange programs work, um, and so this is a big deal. It's a public health issue, right? It keeps, it reduces the number of dirty needles that are out there that are being used because that is one area that increases the spread of different diseases that are out there. And so this helps to um, keep more people safe from using dirty needles. So the more we can collect them, the the more likely we are to reduce the the spread of, of different diseases in, in our communities. So it's I think it's great, Andy, that it finally got passed and that the legislature um, saw the value in how it protects individuals, but it t protects us from a public health standpoint. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, back to bad news. This will be my rant. Bailey will have her rant in just a minute about separate issues. So this week, the state legislature released their redistricting maps, right? And so the audience, you've undoubtedly known that I've been working on this for <laughs> a year and a half now, and uh, which is a year longer than the legislature has been working on it for what that's worth. Um, so they released their maps and they are not that different, right? They, they look somewhat similar just at a first glance. My big beef with their maps is that they did not and will not release the data, like the actual CSV, like the comma separated value, the files that we could upload into map software to do an actual comparison. So all of us that care about maps are spending our evenings and nights trying to redraw their maps. They've got a good interactive viewer on their websites. That's true. You can look at the maps and it has a few data points, but not many. And so we're having to redraw them. I asked both chambers if they would share the files and they both said, uh, we can't share them without committee approval. Well, the committees don't meet again until next Wednesday, which is, oh, the same day they're voting on these maps. And so they are, you know, slow playing this, right? Like this is super frustrating. I mean, we'll get it done. I'll, I'll get it done by Monday and we can have the data uh, and show everyone like exactly what happened with these maps. Now, my hunch is the reason that they are not releasing this data is because they, they're trying to hide something, right? They're hoping that we won't get there in time, which is a ridiculous thing to hope because we will. But I think that they are hoping that people won't notice that these maps are somehow even more partisan than the current maps that we live in right now, right? What we all know that Oklahoma is a red state. We have Republicans outnumber Democrats like two to one, and that's not going to change. 
but there are a certain number, I can, you know, roughly 10% or so of the seats that are, could be competitive or are competitive. And I think what they've drawn, they've done is draw districts that are redder and bluer, right? So they are safer for incumbents, but it makes them less competitive overall. And we saw this in the public map submission last week, where like for the Senate, the the most you can do is have, um, oh, I, I think like 11 seats that are considered competitive, right? And Republicans are going to win some, Democrats might win others. Uh, the Pat McFerrin, um, who's a longtime Politico, like he submitted a map to the Senate as well. And his was conveniently the least competitive. His was half as competitive as everybody else. Uh, and so there's ways to draw them that are less competitive. Now they will say that they cited, you know, that they use public input and maybe they did like, maybe there's some things that we've all seen the, the input we've been on meetings, we've attended town halls that they had that makes sense. But sometimes at the end of the day, not sometimes at the end of the day, you gotta make a judgment call of how we're going to draw maps that represent the people in these districts. And also, um, not just the ones who happened to give comment, but everyone else who didn't too, right? Like it's not just about those people who happened to see the meeting was happening and happened to come or happened to find out about this and navigated their terrible websites to send an email. So we'll see what happens. So next week, next Wednesday is the committee meetings where they will vote and presumably approve these maps. And then the maps will go to the floor of each chamber and they'll probably vote on those on Thursday. And then they'll go to the opposite chamber to go through committees again. So this is maybe a two-week deal before they're all done and, and approved. Uh, and I'll mention here that next Thursday, listeners, uh, that's Thursday the 29th at 2.30 p.m. We are the people, not politicians. That's the we I'm referring to. And the League of Women Voters are hosting a, a rally at the Capitol. We haven't done one of these in a couple of years, right? So it's a uh, people-powered fair maps day of action. It'll be from two thirty to three thirty at the Capitol, right outside there in the South Plaza. I know it's tough to get off work. We try to do it a little bit later in the afternoon, um, so that maybe people can cut out of work a little early. But it'll be uh, a good time. We will try to stream it online. You all know that the uh, Wi-Fi at the Capitol sucks, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but it should be a good time. We'll have um, some guest speakers. I'll provide an update. Um, Jan from the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma will serve as MC. Abby Broyles uh, is going to be speaking briefly about um, HR1, which we've talked about on the show some, and because it contains some anti-gerrymandering components as well as some other really good reforms. So uh, it'll be fun to see everybody. Wear a mask. We've got chairs. We'll have them all spread out. Stay socially distanced, all that stuff. Um, if by some chance you're listening and you're not registered to vote, we'll have voter registration forms too, of course. And it'll be important for listeners to follow because again, as we've said before in previous podcasts, how lines are drawn impacts where money goes in our communities. It impacts what our representation is going to look like um, when it's time for like those census conversations and, and where resources go from the federal government, they're decided based on how those maps are drawn for an entire decade. And so we have to follow what's going on and making sure that our voice is heard to ensure that our districts are drawn equitably and in ways that will not benefit one party over another, but will be best for representation in our state. And another reminder is eventually this year, because we will have new maps, you will need to check your voter registration information because there's a chance that you could be in a whole new congressional district. You could be in a new state uh, Senate district. You could be in a new state house district. You could be in a new city council district, right? <laughs> and so um, be sure to take time later this year to verify that you know who represents you, or if you have an election in um, 2022, you know, 
who you would be voting for because <laughs> it, it could change after a redistricting process. So that's just something to to keep in your mind. And another reminder of why it's so important to show up um, next Thursday for uh, the rally at, uh, Andy was talking about. Yeah, that's right. And when Bailey says check in later this year, she means like November because we won't have final maps until then. Yes. So this right now is just the state house and state senate district. Okay. Yeah. The congressional districts won't be drawn until the fall, until August or September. It sounds like they're going to come back for special session, probably in the month of September or October. And that's when they will draw the congressional districts. And if the data indicates they need to, they will, you know, tweak or adjust the state legislative districts then. Uh, because right now they're drawing them based on population estimates, not on the actual census data. Right. It hasn't been released yet which is uh, certainly contentious. So um, these are these are unprecedented times. A lot of things to remember and consider of why this is so important. <laughs> I will make sure that you that you stay uh, abreast of the latest on this. But I will I will end on one gripey note. And that is that in the press conference, they said the word transparency like 10 times. This is most transparent ever. And then they won't release the data. And I'm like, you said it was transparent and then you won't release the data. Those two things do not go together. Why not err on the side of transparency and release the data? Like we can see it. You just don't want to give me the file. It's just a stupid, like a petty thing. So um, the media is upset. I'm upset. Um, everyone else should be upset too. Write your write your state legislator. Tell them, release the data. Data wants to be free. Okay. Um, all right. Let's go um, back to good news then. Um, this week, man, what day was this? It all blurs together, but, um, this is not directly Oklahoma news, but I think it really affects the whole country. We received a verdict the jury reached a verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin, who is the police, former police officer in Minneapolis that, uh, shot and murdered George Floyd. Well, he didn't shoot him. He oh, put right. a knee on his neck. There's been so many shootings. I spoke out of turn. Yes. He, uh, yeah. Suffocated him to death. Um, that was last spring, right? So it's been almost a year since uh, mm -hmm. Floyd died. Um, this is a big deal. I remember I was listening to NPR that morning, knowing that the jury was deliberating. They expected a verdict that day. Um, and then it felt like one of those moments in your life where the world kind of stops for a few minutes and everyone stops breathing while we wait and hear what happens. And this is an area that connects to what we were talking about earlier. And so in a future podcast, it would be great to go into more depth about this. I think as people begin to process, there's a number of emotions. And a couple that I want to lift about this moment is that it's about accountability for someone with authority and power who killed someone, right? And that statement is an important way to give people a sigh of relief who have felt that they have witnessed a number of disappointments and letdowns in the criminal justice system. However, this one verdict doesn't mean that the criminal justice system works the way it's supposed to, right? <laughs> And so we're still, even after that verdict, right, are hearing about new hashtags of people who have been murdered by police, right? And so the work is still there for us to change systems and hold institutions accountable for taking lives. Um, and to do the to do the justice, one, I think the most powerful thing that I read um, in people's assessments about how they felt on the day that the verdict released was that justice would have been George Floyd being alive. And that's the ultimate goal, right? As we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, that it's about preventative. What can we do to avoid people being killed by police? How can people go through uh, their due process, right? And be held accountable 
through the laws that we have in place versus an idea of almost like street justice in the use of lethal force, right? And so that's the ultimate goal. While people are taking that sigh of relief, there's still trauma, there's still um, fear of when the next <laughs> police murder will happen and where it will be, right? Yeah. And so there's still so much work to be done. There's a, yeah, that's exactly right. Like we are relieved and it's, a, it is, I think it is telling that we all were so nervous and anxious about whether or not a jury would uh, say that a man killed somebody else when we all saw and the that, Yeah, that video, right? This is a time where there was actual video evidence. Um, and one of my uh, social media friends said that like they believed what they saw, right? Which is powerful because we've seen some other moments where somehow the footage is questionable in the eyes of the judicial yeah. system and justice didn't come in the way that we expected it to, right? And so this was a clear depiction where you even had law enforcement participating in the trial. Yeah saying that this was against our code of ethics. This doesn't align with what we were taught in policing, right? Um, which we don't, which we rarely see, right? Um, in this case, and in, in the outcome going in the way that, that people were hoping for. And so what happens in those moments when there isn't recording, right? So thinking about the piece that we talked about um, earlier, of the bill that protects law enforcement officers from their names being disclosed or being recorded or different things, right? Um, what does it mean if you don't have that video evidence and it's one word against another, right? How can accountability be held or how can we know truth when we know there's countless moments of no footage being there for us to be able to to make those assessments, right? And so, um, and the thoughts about justice, I hope that's something that, you know, our listeners can continue thinking about is in cases where there isn't clear footage, <laughs> yeah. what does it mean to um, have just because people are going to be holding their breaths, right? In, in the ways that we did in a moment where there was actual video footage. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. That what would have happened if there hadn't been anyone around when George Floyd was murdered, right? Like we we would have known, and there would have been no semblance of justice then, right? Um, that it's a terrifying thing. Um, and yeah, and so. Now, who knows if this will be the turning point uh, based on what's happened during the trial and the number of other people, black people who have been murdered by police. I'll say no. Right. But it's uh, this was a good step and it is one tiny, tiny step in a long journey that we have to reaching that true sense of things being just right. All right. Well, that's um, that's a good thing, but it's still heavy. Uh, so now let's go to a bad thing. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier in the show, uh, usually Fridays are quiet, but today, um, and it's often a day when the legislators like have a big news dump. They all put out a bunch of press releases about stuff. I have a whole folder in my inbox for all of the, the press releases that come out of that building. And good golly, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> today, one stood out from the rest, and that one was from Senator Nathan Dom who we uh, occasionally malign on the show because he often is championing uh, the wrong things. Yeah. Unconstitutional bills. Right. Uh, and, and today his press release was about earth day and paper straws and so much more. Um, I don't, I don't have it pulled up here, but he was trying to, well, he, he, he wants point, to, right? to push legislation that would ban the use of paper straws because he believes that people who have opposite ideological views than him, um, and I'm not even gonna say left and right, because 
there may be some people who are moderate or or uh, conservative that he feels would be in that camp. So I'm just gonna say people who have different views than him. He feels that um, the use of paper straws has led to more trees being cut down and that it's a ridiculous idea to begin using plastic because he, he mentioned like, because they saw a video of a, a turtle choking on a, paper, a, a plastic straw, therefore, you know, it's ridiculous to say that we need to reduce, you know, our consumption of plastic, you know? And so with him making points related to paper straws, he decided to take a leap that had nothing to do with paper straws to take jabs at President Biden, to take a jab at um, Senator Mitt Romney, and to also um, offensively call out Kamala Harris. And the difference between him calling out President Biden and Senator Romney versus Vice President Harris is with the two men that he called out, he focused on politics and difference in political views, right? He believes that Biden is just moving too far in policy. He believes that Mitt Romney um, has flip-flopped and has and, and is taking uh, different positions than he would normally take on legislation. So it was all focused on that. So even whether we disagree or not, that's how he felt and that's fine. But with Kamala Harris, he decided to make an implication that she was doing oral sex and that's how she made her way up to being a vice president of the United States and serving in, in other offices. I want to find the specific quotation that he used. Go ahead, Andy. I've got it. I pulled it up here. Okay. Also, I made the mistake of looking at Twitter during the podcast. Like I said, I wasn't going to do. And indeed, Senator Dom has responded on Twitter. So this is the way it goes. Uh, yeah. And so this is the deal, right? It, this is a bill. It's a stupid bill he filed to ban paper straws and anything else. No pasta straws and whatever else. Only plastic straws. He did it in honor of Earth Day. And it would have been a non-story if it were not for this last paragraph. And he says, quote, hatred of paper straws is nearly universal. I've never met a single person who enjoys enjoys using a paper straw. They fall apart and turn to mush quicker than Joe Biden trying to string together a coherent, coherent sentence. They collapse like Mitt Romney under the slightest amount of pressure. And even with Kamala Harris, dot, 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 well, never mind. That's in the press release. Well, And so there was a reporter who asked him directly, can you... Tell us, can you finish that ellipses? Can you tell us what you're implying there? And he said, some people can say you can't drink a milkshake from a paper straw. Maybe Kamala Harris could from her past experience. Mm -hmm. And so the entire time he kept alluding to uh, sexual allegations of um, the vice president's promiscuity being the reason she has advanced in public office. So not her law degree, not her ability to litigate and be a district attorney, not her ability to win elections to be U.S. Senator, not her ability to, uh, you know what I'm saying? And not her competencies, but he solely wants to target this black woman, my sorority sisters, um, entire career and relegated to unfounded allegations that are rooted in misogyny that are offensive and uncalled for. So he wants to call it a joke. Um, and it's not anything funny to me. Yeah. That, Nothing funny about it. No, it's, it's absolutely not. So the, in the video now of that interview with Tyler Butler from um, the station in Tulsa is now online and it's uh, Trey Savage just retweeted it and said, this made me, he's like, I read it and it was gross, but I watched it and it made me queasy. So basically, uh, Nathan Dom responded by saying, oh, like, well, if you 
are surprised by this. Like, you know, you shouldn't be, and I'm never going to care about your emotional responses and you just have to deal with it. And I'm, I'm not politically correct. And this is just the way it is. Well, and he utilized his official work through an official channel as a state senator to slander another elected official. Yeah. Um, earlier in session, Majority Leader Kim David was censored because she made a comment in the media that alluded to members of the legislature not being competent on issues related to uh, managed care and other healthcare related things, right? The members were offended, right? This, this wasn't a attack on their decisions outside of work. This wasn't an attack on like, you know, them personally, um, but they found it offensive enough to lift it to leadership and the president pro tem censored her for a week and she lost her floor privileges. And that was something far less egregious than implying that an elected leader did oral sex in order to make their way as vice president of the United States, right? And so I really hope that others will give a call to the president pro tem and express the need and importance to censor him and take those floor privileges away for the rest of session because he needs to be held accountable. He clearly thinks this is a game. He has no remorse for how he is treating people. And the people of, I believe, Broken Arrow should be embarrassed by his behavior, right? And so the, the Senate has the power to reprimand people. And this is the opportunity to show that they can be consistent in adhering to decorum that the lawmakers agree to. Otherwise, it's a clear observation of the bias and how they treated Senator Kim David and how they're treating Nathan Dom. Yeah. I'm sending all this to Scott just to ruin his vacation. He's gonna... <laughs> um, yeah. Golly. It's just, come on, people be good people. Um, listeners, if you're a good person and you live in Senator Dom's district, you should consider running. If you live anywhere, you should consider running. That's just people should consider running. I mean, and, 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 and taking politics out of it, it doesn't matter whether Kamala Harris was Republican or Democrat. The way he talked about another elected official should not be allowed. That was unacceptable. And if it was another person that was being talked about in that way, there probably would be more urgency on, on repercussions for it, right? And so I really hope that the Senate will do the right thing and reprimand him for um, something so uncalled for and so unnecessary um, in a time like where you can be civil. Like uh, the, the old rule that our mamas used to say, if you can't say something nice, say something nice, yeah. don't say some, don't say anything at all. Just be quiet. Right. He could have right. easily shut up. And he and yeah. he chose to um, embarrass his colleagues in the Senate. So the caucus should be embarrassed and they should be ready to reprimand yeah. if, they, if they really hold the values that they say they do. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He tried to score political points and he went way, way too far. Way too far. Not okay. All right. Bailey, that concludes our list of good news and bad news. I do want to lift another thing that happened this session pretty quickly. Sure. Um, this was the week that the legislature was considering a bill. I don't have the bill number, but I'm sure that you'll be able to find it quickly once I start talking about it. Uh, a bill that would allow Oklahoma legislature to say, we don't like decisions being made in Washington, D.C. And so if we have enough votes, we're not going to follow those executive orders or decisions made at the federal level. 
And so there were two different versions. Um, what, there's a House version and then President Pro Tem Treat on the Senate side released a statement saying that the way that the House version is designed, it wouldn't have teeth and it wouldn't hold up constitutionally. So he wanted to adjust the language to be more effective, right? And in the eyes of some Oklahomans, they looked at it as watering down the House version. And so a few days ago, I think that was Tuesday, um, the OK2A, which is the, the Second Amendment organization, showed up to the Capitol and they covered the entire fourth floor rotunda. It looked like there may have been some folks in the fifth floor rotunda, maskless, <laughs> all through the Capitol. A um, rally for liberty. A rally for liberty, um, trying to pressure the Senate and particularly President Pro Tem Treat to go with the House version. And not only did that happen, but the president of OK2A apparently was trying to call for President Pro Tem's Treat's leadership position to be stripped if he didn't move if he didn't move on uh, that bill. And then he quickly came to his senses and released a statement saying, you know, I acted pretty rash. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to backtrack that. So uh, there was a lot that happened this week. It, it really went down. <laughs> and, and that um, that whole rally w was largely peaceful. They brought a ton of pizzas and, you know, whatever. It was a big party in the rotunda with free pizza. But there was a, a photo or a video of someone like using, pulled out a pocket knife to um, cut something. And everyone <laughs> saw it on Twitter and was like, well, how, how did that guy get through with a pocket knife? Now, there are metal detectors at the Capitol, but they don't catch everything. And I didn't, I didn't see the picture to see how big or small the knife was, right? Like you can get through, it'll usually pick up your phone, but like your keys in your pocket don't always trigger it. So I could see where a small pocket knife might not set off. It's not like they do a pat down for everyone going in and out of the Capitol. But um, I will lift this. There was also a small protest of um, anti-fascism activists. Yeah, it was about the anti-protest bill, about the, that's what they yes. were in, I think. And they showed up at the Capitol and apparently there was security and other things, you know, brought up in mass. And so it's just interesting that those involved more people of color involved in that advocacy, but you had hundreds of people, okay, 2A protesters and someone in the Capitol with a pocket knife <laughs> and, yeah. and there's no security concerns or anything. And so there really is a difference in how protests are viewed, how they're monitored and how protesters are treated based on what issue you're protesting and who is who makes up the population of people protesting, right? Um, so that was something that was disappointing to see this week, but it is a reality. And another reason of why people are fearful of the bill that the governor signed that would allow protesters to get ran over. Well, just another week. Uh, so from here on out, the uh, conversation, the Capitol will turn largely to the state budget. And so expect more about that. We are just over five weeks from the end of the legislative session, the mandatory constitutional end, um, which would be May 28th, I believe that Friday. They may get done early. Sometimes they get done a few days early. They always say they're going to do it a couple of weeks early. That rarely happens. From what I've seen so far, they've said that the chambers are still a ways apart on education funding. So we'll see um, more about that uh, coming up. It'll be... Budget talks are always interesting, right? Everyone's nervous about who's going to get cut. So, okay, so uh, we're going to jump back in to record this. And as we said, this, there's been a whole lot going on this week. Right. So, right after we finished recording the podcast, um, we were still chatting and looking at Twitter. And uh, Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat has issued a statement regarding Nathan Dom. A very powerful one. 
and I'll read it here. It says, I am disappointed in Nathan Dom's comments about the vice president of the United States. His comments were misogynistic, disrespectful, immature, and undermine the good work of the staff and other members of the Oklahoma Senate. As the leader of the Senate, I hold senators to a high standard of conduct and decorum, and Senator Dom completely failed to live up to that standard. And I am grateful that President Pro Tem Treat used the right language to describe what he did and is taking an immediate step to address and speak out against the treatment of members. Because as I mentioned in the podcast, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, members deserve respect, right? And elected leaders deserve respect. And so I'm grateful that Senator Treat is holding members to that standard. And I appreciate the statement. And I hope that he takes that next step um, next week of accountability through some form of reprimand. Like I said, I hope that it censors, like he's censoring um, Nathan Dom, but I'm at least grateful for this first step of making that statement before the weekend hits. Yeah, and often those uh, censures happen privately. Like the thing with Senator David somehow got leaked to the media that they found out about it. But so it something may have happened. We'll uh, we'll see. Um, I'm sure this will be a developing story. But listeners wanted to keep you since it was so so relevant to what we just talked about. That's a big deal. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot. See you next week. Bailey, thanks for being here today. Always, Andy. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Have a good week. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. <laughs>